Welcome to High Energy Health, where together we explore the leading edge of wellness and happiness. I'm your host, Dawson Church. By choosing this time together, you're declaring your commitment to a positive mindset, elevated emotions, and a great life. Thanks for joining me for today's episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of High Energy Health. I am so glad you are here today because each week on the show, I get the privilege of connecting with you and all the other tens of thousands of people in our wonderful online virtual healing community and sharing ideas, tips, insights, research about things that can really make a difference in our lives as we apply them. So I'm so glad you're taking care of your well-being by joining me here on High Energy Health, and I urge you to make this a an integral part of your day, of your week. You deserve it. I know I do read the news. Some people think, oh, Dawson, you're so happy all the time. You wake up happy, get a bit happy. Do you know what's going on in the world? I do read the news, but I also make sure I read positive news. There are all kinds of positive news stories that are just under the radar of the news that makes the headlines. And so there are so many things to be happy about, be grateful for in our world. And filling your mind and your heart and your attention field with those positive things is part of giving yourself an insulation, a buffer against all the bad news out there. I know there was one study published recently that referred to meditation as inoculation against social media. And what the authors framed this as was that meditators are able to enter these peaceful emotional states, elevated mental states, and that provides inoculation from all of the unsettling influences of social media. So they may read the news, they may be exposed to social media, but it's not pulling their strings. They aren't marionettes with those bad news stories making them feel bad. There's a layer of insulation around them, that inoculation that those authors are referring to, and that inoculation is meditation and inner peace and paying attention to your inner state. So that's what you are doing by picking high energy health as one of your inputs into your day, your week, your month. So I commend you for being here. It's great to share this time in our minds, our hearts, and our conscious attention with each other. My guest today is Jerry Cantor. He is the author of the new book, The Emotional Roots of Chronic Illness. He's a faculty member of the Ontario College of Homeopathic Medicine, and he also practices as a homeopath and acupuncturist. He was also the first acupuncturist to receive an academic appointment at Harvard Medical School's Department of Anesthesiology. He is the author of several other books, including Sane Asylums and The Toxic Relationship Cure. His website is vitalforcehealthcare.com. Jerry, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. 
Same here, uh, Dawson. I love your upbeat message, and uh, this is going to be a lot of fun. Oh, absolutely. Every day is upbeat. We may as well make it so. So just for those who aren't that familiar with homeopathy, we've covered a lot of other natural healing methods here on the show over the last, I guess, 15 years or whatever it's been, but we haven't actually had much on homeopathy. Just give viewers a sense of what it involves and how it came to be. Oh, boy. <laughs> okay, well... No, I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> but not two hours either. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, very basically, it's the, law of similar. it's the law of similars, using like to uh -huh. cure like. I'll tell you what it's not. People think synonymous homeopathy is synonymous for anything gentle. Not the case. Two other words start with H, which confuse people. Holistic. Homeopathy is definitely holistic, but there are a lot of things that are holistic that are not homeopathic. And herbs, which starts with H. People come and tell me that doing homeopathy when they're just taking herbs. Not the case. The law of similars. How do I explain this? It's quite simple. I mean, the remedies, which are the medicines we use, are extremely dilute. There's, hard, there's nothing there but energy, the essence of, of a particular substance. Now, that same substance, in a gross amount, would produce symptoms in a, a bunch of healthy individuals. This was called homeopathic research. Uh, that's the inverse of the law of similars, which I would call the law of inculcation. We would inculcate certain states, states in people uh, who um, expose themselves to a certain substance, which can be an herb, can also be a chemical compound, it can be uh, the venom of a snake. We don't really, in the research, we're completely unbiased. We want to find out what it does at the mental, emotional, and physical level. Strange and peculiar symptoms are very interesting to us. And anyway, that information gets entered into homeopathic texts called Materia Medica. And then the great matching game begins when someone enters into our office, which I call, and I call the work spiritual forensics. I have to figure out what's going on in my client at, at a deep level, existentially or in terms of spiritual conflict that is manifest, that manifests in symptoms that I can match with what I know in the Materia Medica. So I call that spiritual forensics. Okay. And then a little bit about how it arose in the 1900s and how it's applied today. And also, let's make sure we cover the research, because as I looked it up, there is a pretty substantive body of research, empirical research, clinical research on homeopathy. Oh, my. It goes to the end of the 18th, uh, the beginning, the very end of the 18th century, around the 1790s, when Samuel Hahnemann, the founder of homeopathy, began writing his papers. It had a heyday in the 19th century which crested really in the in time of uh, Abraham Lincoln's presidency. You're asking about the research. Yeah, it's not, uh, there's been a big paradigm divide with, divide with conventional medicine, so conventional medicine simply will not publish the research of homeopaths. And one problem is, is that in homeopathy, we value the individual much more than the group. The uh, differences between people are much more important than the commonalities. So you, Church, Dawson, and I have the same uh, basic shape, same number of organs. We're basically, you know, basically the same. But that's not terribly important as far as homeopathy co is concerned. So all these notions about what's normal, meaning that something abnormal is a deviation from the normal, we should, there's some kind of normal state of, of health, that doesn't work in homeopathy. We want to figure out what exactly an individual's reality is, what their deep crisis is in, in very specific terms. And that's, that's where we live. So if someone comes to me, this happened as an acupuncturist too, Jerry, I fall in between all the cracks. It doesn't. It, I, no one knows what to make of me. I say, wonderful. To me, everyone is a crack, and <laughs> we can explore that. Yeah, and uh, the specifics matter to me more. I, it's not diagnosis-driven. That's the other thing. When you have a diagnosis, you're assuming all these people fit in that particular box. A diagnosis that someone brings me can be a starting point, but it's certainly not going to help. You know, ultimately help me choose the, the medicines I want to use. 
So in other words, people with the same diagnosis would, will invariably get different homeopathic remedies for me, and people with uh, varying, very apparently different conditions may get the same remedy, so long as I've, I've identified the core issue there, which I've been talking about now in these days as existential issues, as per my, my new book. <laughs> Give us a couple of examples of that case histories of people who you took that approach with. So they came, they had a certain diagnosis, and then how you did that for those forensics, and then were able to identify what they needed, and then find the appropriate remedy. Okay, well, I'll, I'll take, pick the remedy Apis, which is made from uh, crushed angry bees. And to learn about that remedy, it really helps to learn about what's going on in the honeybee colony. Let's say a woman comes to me with ovarian polycystic ovarian syndrome. I would find out from her that, uh, I might find out from her that, let's see, she could be the daughter of Im immigrant parents, and she has been constantly uh, taking care of her parents whose English is not good, and she has had to put off her own reproductive future because she's she's got to take care of her parents. Um, to me, this is a subcategory of an existential question, the quandary uh, opposing isolation to synchrony, where we have to be in, in synchrony with nature, we have to be in synchrony with natural rhythms. Okay, so this woman, I determined that she has she's, she has the diagnosis of polycystic ovarian syndrome, but when I take her case, uh, what I discover is that she tends to bloat when she has her period. And that she tends to have stinging when she has, she, she develops hives and she's, she often has a lot of itching complaints. But she, on the positive side, she's also very community oriented and very, very restless and busy. And she has these polycystic ovarian, ovarian uh, syndrome. Now, God is pretty smart. He doesn't, doesn't use, if God was making a car, he wouldn't use a, he wouldn't design it would have both brakes and a gas pedal. He'd use one pedal. So in the human, in the body, this is also what happens around reproduction. In her situation, it's not the time for her to reproduce. She's got to take care of her core family. And so the, the follicle, which emerges from the ovary, normally that whole process is mediated by estrogen. And the follicles, they're like, think of them as nice Catholic schoolgirls or something. Once one follicle is dominant, the other one sort of say, oh, you are the anointed one, please go forward. And that, and that becomes a mature follicle and uh, fertilization can take place. But under stress, in a situation like this, I would call it an existential situation, where the time is not right to reproduce, this is because of some kind of stress. The whole system, reproduction, is powered by adrenaline. And now the follicles are all competing with each other, and they're all muffling their way forward, but they're all weak. And so what happens is they pockmark the surface of the ovary, and none of them can mature. And this is the one-petal version of stifling reproductivity because existentially the time is not right. So the remedy Apis, which is made from honeybees, would be the right remedy here because in the honeybee colony, everything is about either reproduction or production. It's, it, and this relates to Genesis in the Bible where they say, God says, go forth and, and be fruitful and multiply. And the existential lesson this teaches is that, you know, times when you can't do both, you've got to choose one or the other. And the psyche is choosing under the stress of this, uh, the pressure of this existential stress, not to reproduce. And it does this by adrenalizing the reproduction system and encouraging the follicles to compete with each other and simply pockmark your ovaries. So when the remedy is given in some magical kind of way, in the idea of using like to cure like, the stress of that dissipates. And she probably can find, despite her situation, that she can relax at a deep level and halt this, the, reverse the process of, of creating polycystic ovaries. <laughs> so uh, does that answer your question? Is one for one example? Yeah, that is a good example of how you might use a remedy and it might a metaphor for the situation that the person is in. Yes. So this is also the domain where the metaphor is absolutely literal. That's right. And by the way, someone who needs the remedy apis, apis can be used in acute situations just if you've been stung by a bee. 
if you're stung by a bee, the area gets red and hot, and you would never apply heat to it. It's, it's itching, and it makes you move around. It, when, you, when you need the remedy apis constitutionally, it's like your whole being has been stung by the bee. And again, you're adrenalized. You want to move around. You tend to be restless. You're very community-oriented because this is how bees are. And it's a very female remedy, once again, because the female, the, the honeybee colony is almost ex- entirely female. These are all sisters, uh, the, the bees. Uh, there are a couple of males, they're clones, that be drones, and they're not particularly useful. Sometimes they shut out of the hive in the winter. All they do is fertilize the virgin queen. But so people who need, I left this out, women who need apis will also tend to have jealousies with siblings. So the rivalries are of love, just like in the bee, in the bee colony. So the remedy allows that issue to be resolved at some deep level. And it's women who, for, if they're coming not for necessarily with polycystic ovarian syndrome, they may just have terrible periods and they're bloat and they tend to get puffy, just like what happens when you have, when you're stung by a bee. And the remedy would be very good for that. So it would be good. It comes up for certain kinds of skin conditions. It comes up for reproductive disorders, all kinds of things involving hormonal disturbance. That's just one example. And you can see that that remedy could be used for a whole sort of different conditions, but the issue that's internal to it is still the same. And again, how different that is from the traditional classical medical training, where you look for a diagnosis, there are diagnostic criteria, and then you apply a remedy for that diagnosis. So this is a far more nuanced approach than that. I'm just curious about how that is communicated in homeopathic training. Oh, yeah, it's a ground idea. It's a very fundamental idea. And with lots, just as with lots of things, knowing it in the abstract is very different from actually a training. Uh, you would learn the principle, this idea of using like to cure like. You have to learn that. And, you know, this idea of counting on a paradoxical effect. You learn how to take a case. This is the whole kit and caboodle of it. People tell you all kinds of things when they come in, come into the office. But with experience, you realize you have to pay attention not to what they're saying, but also what they're not saying. You have to look at their physical symptoms. The physical symptoms speak volumes. You have to figure out how to use the software uh, to convert what they're telling you into to uh, rubrics. Rubrics are descriptions of everything that can happen to an organism. Uh, and then the rubrics appear in a book called The Homeopathic Repertory. And then you toggle back and forth between the repertory and the Materia Medica, which is the inverse of that. The Materia Medica is a full description of what a substance produces in human beings that we've, that we've seen in what I described as the provings. Materia Medica, homeopathic Materia Medica are very honest books. I would contrast them with two books that we're familiar with outside that, with like a toxicology book, which looks at a substance only in terms of the bad that it does, the, how it poisonous effect, its poisonous effects. And then on the other, other hand, a physician's desk reference, which prefers to look at only the good things that a drug does and is kind of poo-poos the side effects, which are actually the primary effects of, of the drug. The Materia Medica is completely honest. We put everything in there that we like and we don't like. We don't care. It's just the, what that substance inculcates in people, how it's represented in someone at, at mental, emotional, physical levels. So sometimes we would prescribe based on a positive quality, not just some, something pathological. Hmm. As I say, yeah. an apis woman has many admirable qualities. She's, she's uh, community-oriented. She, family is incredibly important to her. What's wrong with that? Nothing. <laughs> if she's not like that, if she's very different, I probably would not give her apis, even if she had polycystic ovaries. Idea in the book of finding these emotional roots of chronic illness. And chronic illness, of course, is something that conventional medicine is actually fairly poorly equipped to, to treat. There are lots of chronic illnesses now, far more than there were 50 or 100 years ago. And often conventional medicine has a difficult time treating them. 
And looking at that conventional drug model of looking for a drug to address them often doesn't work very well, as we've seen in, in billions of dollars of pharmaceutical research that's gone nowhere in the last 50 or so years. So go ahead and share how you arrived at that insight that a lot of these chronic illnesses do, in fact, have emotional roots. I'm not the, the only the originator of this. The idea is this. Let's say someone has a cough. You can't come into the office and say, I'm a, I've got a cough. Fix my cough. I'm just like everybody else who has a cough. I mean, there are dozens and dozens of remedies that can treat a cough. Which one do you pick? If you made a pyramid of every symptom someone has, and this includes, and I shouldn't just say symptoms, but also their features that, as I say, we can, we can take into account positive features. At the very peak of the pyramid would be the characteristics that are specific to that personality. The best question I ever asked, uh, my favorite question when I take a case is, what's your hot button? What's the situation <laughs> that makes, what's the situation that makes you uncomfortable? Yeah. I can ask this the other way around too. I can say, if I saw you, Dawson, at you, when you're most bent out of shape, what would I see in here? Okay, you tell me whatever it is. I, I, uh, I get irritable or I withdraw or I write a poem or an award-winning book or I take a drink. Okay, thank you. I wrote that down. Now, what exactly preceded that? That's your hot button. What exactly preceded that? So how we become uncomfortable has a great deal to do with how we become sick. And then delve into that deeper when we get back. Yeah, so yeah. you're listening to High Energy Health. Please stay tuned. We'll be right back after a break. Hello and welcome back to High Energy Health. I'm your host, Dawson Church. I'm happy as always to share this time with you and see if we can make all of us just that much happier as well. Thank you for making High Energy Health part of your regular routine and the way of keeping yourself informed and inspired. If you'd like more about the the book that we're talking about today, The Emotional Roots of Chronic Illness, go to Jerry Cantor's website, which is vitalforcehealthcare.com. Vitalforcehealthcare.com. Jerry, let's go back to this whole question of the emotional roots of chronic illness, because one of the things I've been so struck by as I have done, I did about a 20-year research program on PTSD, and I, I did many clinical trials. We produced two meta-analyses. It was a big, big, multi-decade effort. And one of the striking things I noticed there was that we've known experimentally since the 1990s, and that was when the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study was published. The very first parts of it were published. We've known that unresolved emotional trauma translates into is strongly correlated with disease in the body 50 years later, and that those emotional wounds do not, in fact, heal. Those emotional wounds actually lead to all kinds of, of issues. And yet, even though unresolved trauma has been linked conclusively to cancer, heart disease, all kinds of chronic illnesses, lifestyle illnesses, it still isn't applied in healthcare. We saw this, this model 30 years after the ACE study was performed of people walking into a doctor's office, describing a problem a diagnosis being created, and a usually a drug prescribed. And we haven't escaped that model despite knowing that that's not how most chronic illness arises. So uh, let's, let's take a deep dive into that whole question of the emotional roots of chronic illness. 
Yeah, it's a problem in conventional medicine because of the, the fractioning of the medicine. We have so many specialties, and psychology, the psychological aspect of a disease is, is, is disrespected, basically. In homeopathy, that is completely not the case. In fact, it's quite the opposite. You mentioned PTSD. I mean, I could talk about a, a particular remedy for that and talk about its existential meaning in, in emotional terms. So many veterans coming back from the wars, you know, they have flash tempers, they're erratic. This kind of thing. Who are you looking at? You know, and going to the rage. They also have a very profound re religiosity. The remedy that would be most commonly used for that—it's just tragic to me that it's not available at the VA hospitals—is a remedy called stramonium, and we use that for uh, you know children who come in in tremendous rage. And homeopaths know that the doorway to that has been terror. They have been terrified of something. And not only that, it's a situation of not just being frightened, but being very alone in your fright, like you've been abandoned in the wilderness. So this is a remedy that makes a, a tremendous difference. You don't become just automatically a generic person after taking that, but you might downshift into a junior version of it, whereby your fears are just not so debilitating as to make you want to go grab a gun the second someone looks at you funny. I have described that remedy as a subcategory of one of my existential questions, which is, will the insurrection of my birth prove fruitful? Why, how I, how this is related to that, you have to go in, into the book. That particular existential question relates to what I would talk about as the sense dimension of sight, which is one of, of course, one of our five senses. You know, this is how it works. Sight. We say we go blind with rage. We never say we go deaf with rage. This, uh, the connection between anger and sight is hardwired and very deeply recognized within Chinese medicine. So the challenge within this, what I call the sense dimension of sight is not to never be angry, but to convert anger into creativity. Now, how does that work in terms of all this, this sort of like metaphysical thinking? In Chinese medicine, springtime, which is a very creative time in nature, sight, which is the portal of the uh, element of wood, these are all connected. We see too much. This is a problem with sight. It's panoramic. We always see too much. And the, and the threat, the challenge to us within that existential quandary is to convert anger into to creativity, not to squash anger, you know, not to dismiss it. Anger should solve a problem. But if you overuse it, if you use it in every situation, that would be like a carpenter only uses his hammer and won't and won't use any other tool. And if you squash your anger, which is represented in another remedy like staphysagria, then you're using the claw end of the hammer on yourself and you're squashing yourself and you're causing yourself other kinds of problems. So this is an, a kind of an example of what I'm talking about, the emotional roots. We all have a need to make our lives just, you know, at the end of, us, of, end of our life, particularly, we want, to, we, we want to see that our life has been worthwhile. And this is a question of vision. What was our vision? Did we fulfill our vision in life? Were we insightful? <laughs> Connecting a lot of things, but as I say, I, I view myself as a philosopher of medicine. These things are, are all related. They're not separate. And if you don't, if you don't go in this direction when you're studying homeopathy, you're going to practice, you will not be an effective practitioner. And on the other hand, if you do, and you could successfully, successfully doing it, your patients will say to you, you know, not only have you helped me, but you've enlightened me. My life makes sense now. I mean, my illnesses make sense. It's not a matter of just being told I've got some kind of diagnosis. It's kind of hopeless. Let's do a whole bunch of tests. Oh, the tests have come back. They're inconclusive. Let's do some more tests. That's a very good economic model, by the way. And the pharmaceutical industry has done very well by that. The one reason that people don't know so much about homeopathy is not because the research is, is poor or the science is not good, but for a very simple reason. The remedies 
these are not patentable. No one has a patent on them, so there's no profit involved with them. But it's a powerful medicine. The history of it has been suppressed. In my previous book, which is which you alluded to, Sane Asylums, The Success of Homeopathy Before Psychiatry Lost Its Mind, I just kind of I delved a whole chapter in American history, which has been deliberately obscured because the truth of it is just inconvenient to the mental health profession, to psychiatry and pharmaceuticals. There were Dozens and dozens of homeopathic mental hospitals around the country, which were kinds of which were utopias, where people got wonderful care, where they weren't weren't medicated and kicked and kicked out into the into the dysfunctional families again. You know, that's another topic, but it's close to my heart, and we're all, we're still talking about the same thing ultimately. Yeah, there are quite a few books like that. Mad in America is another of them, and there are several books, exposés by medical journalists of the arc of the disappearance of alternative medicine methods that were really prolific in the 1900s and how many of them have been forgotten. Some of them are making a comeback now, but one thing that I want to cover, we only have a couple of minutes before the break, but to what do you ascribe the hostility on Wikipedia toward homeopathy and all the other natural healing methods? If you look at energy medicine, the Wikipedia entry says it's pseudoscience right off the bat. Homeopathy, the editors who, there's a small group of editors who control all of these entries. The Wikipedia is not editable by anybody as people imagine. There's a very small group of people that control these, and they were very proud of themselves about five years ago getting the word quackery inserted in the first paragraph on homeopathy. What do you describe this incredible hostility that we see toward homeopathy and other natural remedies on Wikipedia? Oh my God, I could talk about this for hours. Well, one clear answer is uh, what happened in 1910 when the Flexner Report came out, which was sponsored by Andrew Carnegie and uh, John D. Rockefeller because they found that they could make so much money from the off-products petro petrochemical research. And the alternative medicines were a thorn in their sides. So they, they, they created the, the Flexner Report was designed to destroy all the schools that do that, not, not just homeopathy, but things like Thompsonianism. The paradigm divine has been very, very big. Frankly, before at, at one time, homeopaths were very, very popular in this country. In Lincoln's time especially, his entire cabinet was full of, of homeopaths. And they were eating the documental doctor's lunch. People like me were wealthy in those days because people absolutely preferred homeopathy. Oh, boy. The word quackery. Do you know where the word quackery comes from? No. These things are so infuriating when you know them. So another word for mercury is a quicksilver. And in the days when syphilis was rampant, the conventional physicians found that they could suppress syphilis with mercury. And then, of course, they went crazy and prescribed it off-label all the time for all kinds of things. And people were getting terrible, you know, nerve conditions that are like, you know, mad hatters. And people started to fear them. And they were called quickers and then quicks and then quacks. That's where it comes from. That's one of the roots. There's another version of it also. But anyway, homeopaths had many, many times in history had to clean up the mess. And one of the ways they would clean up the mess was to use the dilute version of mercury, you know, in order to, get again, using like to cure like. So it's a terrible injustice. That term has been turned around and used on homeopaths when it's, it's not only completely untrue, but it's the opposite is the case. There's yeah. a, lot of, a lot of ironies like that in the history of medicine, and it really, right, really pays to be well-informed. We're going to go to a break right now, but please stay tuned. For more on Jerry's work, go to his website, vitalforcehealthcare.com. We'll be right back after a break. Hello and welcome back to High Energy Health. My name is Dawson Church and I love sharing with you every week on the show. As you can tell, I am excited, I am thrilled, I am delighted to be able to be part of this wonderful healing community 
of energy medicine, energy therapies, and the breakthroughs we're seeing today for the treatment of all kinds of physical diseases, for chronic pain, and for all those psychological conditions that impede our well-being, like anxiety, depression, and traumatic stress. So it's just a thrill to be part of the research effort showing that these things are actually very easily curable in most people and opening human potential to those. So I'm so glad you are sharing in this wonderful shift in psychology and healing. And you'll find about all about it here on High Energy Health. So I so appreciate you joining me here. Jerry, also you talk about five emotions in your book, The Emotional Roots of Chronic Illness. Go ahead and share with us the framework, which you mentioned earlier is tied to Chinese medicine, for perceiving and moving into a deep understanding of illness. Okay, Dawson. It's a, it is kind of a deep dive, but I can do a brief version of it. And it's not just that they're emotions, but these are existential quandaries that are at root of our existence. And if human beings can resolve the, the tension in those existential quandaries, they know the meaning, they will learn the meaning of life and be optimally healthy. Okay, so I will go through them, and I can't unpack them entirely, but you'll, you'll get a sense of what's going on. I'll give you a little sense of, of what they put you at risk to. So the first one is, am I alone in life, or do I act in synchrony, synchrony with nature and with others? That's one basic one. It also connects most with our early years, our life as a toddler, as a child. It impacts the heart. It has to do with this whole sense of touch, how we connect our parents very early on. And when that's not resolved, if we feel isolated and we do not find that we're in synchrony, we are host to a whole bunch of illnesses, and there are, bunch that, there are remedies which can deal with that. The second one is my presence in the world sustainable, whereas the first quandary was about the circulatory system. This was more, was more about metabolism, and it relates also to the adolescent years where we have to sort of separate from our parents. We have to decide what's, work out the balance between doing something risky and being safe. And that relates yeah, to the stomach and to a whole host of metabolic illnesses if we are actually too reckless or we are too paralyzed by, by anxiety. The third one is, am I oriented in space and time? This has to do with the formation of our identity. And being stuck in, in, in time also relates to, poss- you know, to grief. If we're, if we're paralyzed by a grief, we are stuck in the past. And um, it has to do with our sense of identity. We, in our adult life, we establish who we are and what we do. And it has a lot to do with who we, who we are is what we do. The fourth one is, now it's getting heavier, because this relates to middle age years before old age. Can the boundary between life and death be abided? Clearly a very existential question. What does the idea of the of forthcoming death mean? There's some people who want to just, you know, skirt, escape past that, and they, they lose themselves in materialism and in, in, in sexuality and quick fixes for things. They don't want to go very deep. That's actually an expression of being afraid of death. On the flip side of that, if you have a healthy version of that, you are invested in your legacy. You know you're going to die, but what's going to matter after, you, after you're here will matter. That is an overly big issue for you. You might need a remedy like Argenta Metallicum, where the fear that you, you have not created a decent legacy can impede your reproductive function. And the fifth one is, will this insurrection of my birth prove fruitful? Where at some point we ask, okay, it's, it's, my time is coming. Has my life been worth it? Have I just kicked around on this planet and gotten nothing done? Or was, did something good come from this? And this is also an extension of the idea of a legacy. You know, because if this is the rebirth, this also re- relates to rebirth. And in the book, you know, I go through the many diseases, many illnesses that re- result from an inability to resolve the tension of those quandaries. Existential questions, Dawson, do not have a, le- a yes or no answer. They just have a charge, a powerful charge. And a remedy that re- reduces that charge will make you healthier. 
And but there are many flavors of that particular charge which go through in the book. It's a deep dive, but I, I was I studied philosophy in college and graduate school, and I always wanted to make philosophy be relevant, not just something that was in the realm of ideas. And I find that in Chinese medicine, which is dialectical investigation, you look at feel the pulse, look at the tongue, and then you make a bet. These points will correct this particular imbalance. You get to prove a philosophical point. In homeopathy, too, you do get a little snapshot of a phenomenon without any bias attached to it and come up with a very powerful judgment as to what's wrong there. This is the application. This is philosophy being turned into something practical. If I had to pick a philosopher who actually embodied this idea very deeply, it would be William James in America. And uh, he died in 1910, which was a very bad year for homeopathy, as I alluded to, <laughs> with the Flexner Report and other things that happened at that time. But uh, that's my snapshot on it. They're not emotions; they're existential quandaries. And uh, yeah, when you when you have attention within that, it will produce itself in a certain emotional picture, like with stramonium that I talked about. You know, and, and symptoms which a homeop- which a homeopath can decode. My first book was called Interpreting Chronic Illness, and this book now is uh, equal to that in effect. So my, I think that if you can interpret someone's chronic, someone's illness symptoms, you're doing them a great service, even if you don't give the remedy, which helps the situation. But people suffer so much from fear and uncertainty that feeds into their illnesses that I think this is a very worthwhile thing to go into. And I highly recommend that people do learn about homeopathy and study it. Practice and so it. you mentioned that those remedies can reduce the charge. Would you need to keep on taking the remedy in perpetuity? Is it a one-time fix? How does it work? No, this is the wonderful thing. This is, strikes people as magical. I'm a high-potency prescriber. I give one remedy of this tiny, tiny, tiny amount of substance one time, and if I'm right, if, if I'm on my game, the vital force responds to that with a re- over four or five weeks usually, and then resolves it. And then there's a shift in the person. As I say, they don't become generic people. Something happens, and maybe a junior version of that state will arise. But it's like information. If, if you wake up every morning, Dawson, with a burning, burning question that you never had an answer to, an existential question, you've never heard it, and I come up to you and I whisper it in your ear, and you instantly know that this was correct and it makes sense for a lot of things, you wouldn't have to be told again. And it wouldn't matter if I whispered it or shouted it. It's simply true. You absorb it. So the remedies are very much like like information. I have a few ways of talking about it. I believe that they're a permission slip to the subconscious to let go of a particular issue. They also trick the vital force into converting a chronic problem into something like an acute problem. Why is that good? Well, acute problems are, wh- are how we remain healthy. It's a, it means that the vital force has identified a pathogen or an emotional insult, identified it, fought it off, and now you're back to, you know, it's like a sine curve. Now you're back to normal. Whereas in a chronic condition, which is very good for medical economics, because you just keep throwing medicines at people, you've got good days and bad days, but the thing is always there. And all these medicines do is suppress it, you know, never solve anything, and they don't teach you anything. But in homeopathy, you learn a lot, you get perspective, and you actually, you go through this in a very meaningful way. Yeah, I'm so struck by the fact that now I have many friends who are in their 70s, 80s, and some in their 90s. It's possible to be vibrantly healthy and alive, full cognitive function enormous amounts of energy, all these characteristics of youth in people who are (laughs) getting close to 100. So when we learn to use and apply these remedies and also these insights in our lives, it makes a huge difference to the way our lives turn out. You're listening to High Energy Health. My name is Dawson Church. The book is The Emotional Roots of Chronic Illness. Please stay tuned. We'll be right back after a break.
Hello and welcome back to High Energy Health. I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're sharing this time with me. Bookmark this site. Come back here week after week and also look into our amazing archive of over 200 shows that we've done over the last few years. And there are so many nuggets in there. Listen with your notepad in hand. Make notes and apply these things these insights to your life, they can make a huge difference. And especially think about the theme of today, the emotional roots of chronic illness. So often when we're chronically ill, we are focused not on the emotional roots, but we're focused on immediate fixes to make us feel better. And it's powerful to look at those deeper causes that might be contributing to our malaise. So you have these five existential, huge existential issues at the very beginning of the book. And then, of course, you frame the book in the course of discussing all of those, Jerry. And just go ahead and sum up what those are for each human being. Yeah, I think they cover every situation that a human being can go through over the course of a lifetime. In Chinese medicine, they relate to the five elements, which are fire, earth, metal, water, and air. So this is a work of synthesis. Existential questions do not have yes or no answers. They just have a deep charge, but they can be absolutely paralyzing and they can just drive us around the bend. My feeling is that if you, and my five questions also have an affinity for the five, five different stages of life, infancy, adolescence, adulthood, middle age, and old age. So we would tend to have the experience, the, the issue corresponding life stage. What I was saying earlier, what I, when we were off camera, was that I, I like philosophy, and I'm one of the big questions people ask them when they're thinking philosophically is, what's the meaning of life? And I would say that if you have worked this through, if you have actually in, grappled with each of these five uh, existential quandaries, not only will you be quite healthy through life, but you will know what the meaning of life is. It is not more than that, and it's not a single, not a thing like it's just, oh, happiness or something like that. It's the it's getting through life, these five core quandaries, releasing their charge and being free to move on. And they cycle. It's it, they, they go round and round. After you've gone through the fifth stage, you will be, you'll die, you will be reborn, you'll come back, and you'll re-engage uh, with the first one again, but probably at a much higher level. So yeah, are we in synchrony with, with, with nature and with others is the first one. Um, is my presence in the world sustainable? Is Am I oriented in space and time? Can the boundary between life and death be abided? And will the insurrection of my life be fruitful? Let me say one more thing about that. You know, our birth is an insurrection against the status quo. The world was going along perfectly well, now you come along, you know? There's a question right there. Well, will, will you make, will your life make a difference? The founder of homeopathy, Samuel Hahnemann, for a long time, I think it may still be true, is the only foreigner, a monument in Washington, D.C. It's a beautiful memorial. People should go visit it. Inscribed on there in Latin is, my life I was not in vain. So this question meant a great deal to him. He manifested a tremendous insurrection against the status quo in medicine. But that's a question all of us have at some point. I mean, if we don't, we haven't really lived life very fully. We should ask that question. And I shouldn't, I'm not saying do it every single day. But each of those five questions at some point has a charge that we need to resolve, to identify and resolve. And homeopathy can help with that. And that when that happens, not only do you feel better, but you learn something and you found something out about the meaning of that particular quandary and that question. And that promotes your evolution as a personality and character. Yeah, because you have to step back from life to give that some consideration. And we tend to be very enmeshed in our lives and our lives tend to be very demand driven as we're engaged in our families and our, our work, our own personal reality. And many people don't give themselves very much time or space to actually step back and ponder those big questions. And here in the book, you really are encouraging us to do that and giving us a framework 
for working our way through those five big questions. Yes, that's right. Yeah, and And that by itself, just bringing mindfulness to our situation is going to give us perspective. I know in the Harvard Adult Development Project, they call that making the subject-object shift, looking at your life in the sense of observing yourself, not being enmeshed in the everyday. So we need at least some time, and many people have very few opportunities in their lives and their busy days and weeks to ever step back and do what you're advocating here, Jerry. So thank you for giving us that opportunity with the book. I have found that if I explain a remedy perfectly well and the person is resonating with it, I look at them, you know, and there's a certain avid look the person has. And when that happens, the remedy begins to work even before they've taken it. (laughs) Yeah, you share the theme. This is energy. This is simply energy, but very, very individualized, highly, highly customized energy. For the woman with polycystic ovarian syndrome, I'm just taking countless examples. She might look at me and say, my God, yeah, I have made at some level, I wasn't even aware of it. I made a choice, you know, to take care of my pet, to my reproductivity on this for the sake of my family. That's where my synchrony lies at this moment. I'm not ready. I'm not able to reproduce. Every remedy that I've researched that I use, it's my personal goal to understand the existential issue in there. And there's what I found is that they're all flavors of these five questions. So I've divided the book into the remedies are organized according to five subcategories of these core questions and five core quandaries. And again, the book is The Emotional Roots of Chronic Illness by Jerry Cantor. And again, it's a really compelling and thoughtful invitation to take a deep dive into those. Jerry, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for being here. I so appreciate what you're up to. And I I hope many people accept that invitation. Thanks again. Thank you so much, Dawson. You're an excellent interviewer, and I enjoyed this immensely. Take care. It was a joy. Thank you. And come back again next week for more on high energy health. We have an absolutely amazing lineup of guests coming on the show in the next few weeks. So look forward to seeing you there. I'm Dawson Church. Till I see you again, be healthy, be happy, love yourself, love your life. Thank you. 